Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the award-winning Politically Speaking podcast. <laughs> I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... The unfurloughed Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And... Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. And our first statewide official on the Politically Speaking podcast, we have... State Auditor Tom Schweik. Auditor, thank you very much for joining us here. This is a big honor, uh, the first statewide official. Yeah, it is. We are breaking new ground every week on this show. (laughs) Last week we had the mayor of a city. Now we have a statewide official. Yes, Yes. and this is my birthday present. And happy birthday. And happy birthday. birthday. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I think this is very notable. Plus, it's not only a statewide official. It's the statewide official who will be at the top of the ballot in 2014. Well, this is how everyone wants to spend their birthday, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of people listening are saying, what the heck does an auditor do? The state auditor is responsible for rooting out fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption in state government. We audit state agencies, boards, commissions, universities, the 89 counties that don't have their own auditor. We audit the 522 school districts across Missouri and the 640 judicial circuits. And then if we get a petition, we'll audit cities and political subdivisions. We audit only government. We don't audit private citizens. We don't audit private corporations. As Mm -hmm. to background, um, I'm a fifth-generation Missourian. I went to Clayton Public Schools, met my wife in seventh grade. Uh, My my kids also went to Clayton Public Schools. I have a daughter, Emily, at Mizzou, who's studying to be a teacher, a son, Thomas, who is a 15-year-old at Clayton High School. Uh, I went to Yale undergraduate, Harvard Law School. 20 years with the Brian Cave Law Firms doing corporate internal audits and investigations for big companies who are alleged to have committed wrongdoing. Uh, Wrote three books on business and personal finance. And then I got into public service because of Jack Danforth, who made me his chief of staff on the Waco investigation, Mm -hmm. and then when he was at the United Nations. Then he left the U.N., and John Bolton came in and made me his chief of staff. Then I worked at the Maine State Department in Washington as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement Affairs. I always have long titles. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then the final job I had with the Bush administration was the United States Ambassador for Justice Reform in Afghanistan. And I came back. I taught at Wash U for a couple of years. And that's when a group of St. Louis area Republicans said, well, you know, you've been fighting corruption for corporations at the U.N., around the world, in Afghanistan. Maybe you ought to run for state auditor and try to root out corruption in your own state. And I uh, hit the road, went around the state. It looked like – because St. Louis – it's very hard for St. Louis to get elected statewide. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did not jump in the ring until I'd gone to Springfield and Joplin and some of the other places where you really have Republican strongholds. And when it was clear to me they would support me for auditor, that's when I jumped in and ran. In 2010, I was – it was a good year to be a Republican. I think we ran a good campaign. And I was elected in 2010 and have been auditing ever since. Now, you broke a little bit of ground in that election yeah. before – uh, you you defeated Democrat Susan Monte. It had been decades since a down ballot incumbent had been defeated. What do you think? What do you think uh, put you over the top in that race? There were a couple of things. First of all, it was a good year to be a Republican in 2010. I have to admit, yeah. you know, it, it, there was a wave. But I also think we ran a good campaign. You know, auditors can sort of have an accountant's approach to auditing, and we need accountants. We have uh, 40 or 50 CPAs in the office who are great. Or you can have more of a law enforcement approach. And if you look over the years, about half of our auditors have had a law enforcement background. That's Claire McCaskill, Kit Bond, John Ashcroft, and about half have had an accounting background. I think with all the 
disgust people had with government in 2010. The fact that I had a law enforcement background and was going to crack down on fraud, and that was the theme of the campaign, I think that resonated with voters, and that's why I won. Now, what, were, what have been a couple of – there have been a couple of things that you've, you've added to the auditor's office. One is kind of the excellent, good, fair, poor grading system, and another is the rapid response team. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Right. Well, when I got there, whenever I take over a new organization, I talk to the career people, and the state auditor's office has a great group of career people. Some of them have been there since James Anton was auditor. So you're talking way back, way back. And I said, what can we do to improve the delivery of audit services to the people of Missouri? And the first thing I heard was, well, sometimes the evidence is gone by the time we get there. So I hired Daryl Moore, former Greene County prosecutor, to lead up a rapid response team. If we have credible allegations of a fraud and the destruction of evidence, you need both. We will come in and secure the area quickly. We've done that twice now. In both cases, we found a major fraud. We found a fraud in attendance uh, uh, reporting in the St. Louis City Schools, and we found theft in the Pineville Circuit Court way, way in way southwest Missouri. Uh, and I think that's been successful. Then we put in a grading system. You know, people are more responsive if they're going to get graded. Everybody gets an excellent, a good, a fair, or a poor when they get audited. And we have very specific criteria for how you get one of those grades. It's not just something we just think decide around a table. Uh, it kind of falls into place based on the audit results. But that lets the citizens understand whether it's a good audit or not. There was a lot of mischaracterization of audits going on before I got there. It could be a 70-page audit with one bad thing in it, and the political enemy of the auditee would say it was a terrible audit. Well, we thought we ought to be the ones that decide if it's a terrible audit or not, and so we put a grading system in. It's also helpful with you all, the media. It's easier to understand and explain to the people, and when you write about it, whether it's a good audit or not, when there's a grade to it. So we thought it was helpful with media relations as well. And then the final thing we put in, which is the thing I'm most proud of, is the audit follow-up team. The career people said, what happens is we'll go into a sheriff's office, and 10 years later, it's all the same problems. Because we sometimes don't audit a place except maybe once every 10 years. And so if you get a low fare, kind of a C-minus or a poor, uh, we will come in 90 days later and do a follow-up audit. And we've done 42 follow-up audits now, and you cannot believe how much people want to show improvement. There's over 90% compliance with our recommendations when we do a follow-up. You saw recently in the Rockwood School District, we found lots of problems. Uh, they were excited about a follow-up because they wanted to prove they had corrected the problems. They put up a website. They, you could monitor compliance with each of our recommendations. By the time I got there to do my press conference on the follow-up, they would implemented everything. And so the follow-up is really important because no one likes two doses of bad news, and everybody likes an opportunity to show improvement. So that's, that's probably the best thing we put in place was the follow-up because we've seen true implementation of the recommendations, and our career people said we've never had such complete implementation. It's always been kind of a fight to get people to implement our recommendations. The follow-up process has really ensured those recommendations get implemented. Now, has this these extra um, efforts that you've been making – have you been able to do that with the existing staff, or have you been able to get some additional staff to help you with this? No, we actually have a lower staff. I think okay. when, when Claire McCaskill was auditor, there were 163 people in the office. We have mm-hmm. 120 now, and that's due to budget cuts and, and you know just what everybody's had to go through the past few years. So we've been able to do this with existing staff. Now, I did hire Daryl Moore to lead the follow-up team and the rapid right. response team, and we've had some turnover in personnel, but not much. I think I only hired... I think I only had seven or eight what I would call political appointees, people from Susan Monty's administration that had to leave right. and that I hired. Everybody else we retained, uh, and uh, and the staffing levels are on average. I mean, they go up and down, but on average, significantly less than Claire McCaskill had and slightly less than Susan Monty had. So you were you were sort of in the news yesterday. Sort of. <laughs> Even with the shutdown, this was key news. And yes. um, you, you had been uh, – 
involved in a case against the governor involving his withhold power. Could you just tell me a little bit about what what the case was and and why you got involved in it? Sure. Um, After the disasters in Joplin and the floods we had, um, the governor withheld $172 million from the budget prior to the start of the fiscal year, saying he needed that for disaster relief. Um, We were auditing his office at the time. It was a routine audit, and we asked for support. Support, why do you need to withhold $172 million? The Missouri Constitution says that you can only withhold money permanently uh, if actual revenues are coming in below the estimates, the consensus revenue estimate that's used. Well, he did it before the fiscal year started, and once the fiscal year started, the revenues were actually up. So there seemed to be no need to withhold the money because it appeared there would be adequate resources to fund the entire budget, and there would be enough money to fund disaster relief. Uh, And we felt it was unconstitutional for him to do that because Mizzou got money cut, uh, the legislature got money cut, the courts got money cut. A lot of programs for older people, sick people, students were cut, and there appeared to be no need for it. And more importantly, it appeared to be against the Constitution, which says you can only do those cuts when we're short on revenue. And we understand that. I mean, if you you base a budget on a certain amount of money coming in and it comes in low, of course you've got to figure out where to make cuts because you don't have the money. But he had the money. And it appeared to us to be politically motivated. He was punishing Mizzou had, for example, done a tuition increase he didn't want, so he cut their budget. You know, it appeared to be politics going on. So we filed a lawsuit uh, asking that the, Supreme, the, the lower court and eventually the Supreme Court hold that the governor cannot make permanent withholds unless actual revenues are coming in below estimates, which is exactly what Article 4, Section 27 of the Missouri Constitution says. Uh, I think that's the site. I don't have it here in front of me, but you can look it up. Uh, and uh, the lower court held that, and he also transferred, said he was going to transfer money to disaster relief, and we said that reappropriating money was also improper. Now, keep in mind, this is money the legislature appropriated, the governor has a line item veto capability. He did not use it. He signed it into law and then said he's not giving the money. So he circumvented the legislature. I think he went around what the Constitution says. It turned out that in that fiscal year, the governor spent $3 million on Joplin. He withheld 172 and spent three. Uh, he actually withheld $5 million from Newton and Jasper counties, which is where the disaster occurred. So in some respects, they were forced to pay for their own relief. Um, But the bottom line was I thought it was against the Constitution of Missouri. There was bipartisan support for that issue. I think you saw some Democrats agreed that they had circumvented the legislature, and we sued. Now, the Supreme Court issued its decision yesterday, and they ruled that I had had filed the suit too early, that basically it was not ripe because I'm supposed to do post-audits, not pre-audits, and I needed to wait till the fiscal year was over and then do the audit. So, and they, they dismissed the suit without prejudice, meaning it can be refiled. There's two avenues we can take because they never ruled on the merits of the case, whether or not the governor can do these withholds or not. I, think, I still think he cannot do it. Um, what, what we ended up doing is meeting, and we're going to meet next week again to decide is the best way to pursue this with another lawsuit. I would have to audit the governor again and then file suit. Uh, or should we work with the legislature simply to clarify? I think it's clear in the Constitution, but it, it could be stated even more explicitly that he can't do that. So we're going to be meeting with legislators, and we're going to be talking with our own staff over the next few days to see if we, if and how we proceed. I still believe with very high degree of confidence that what the governor did was unconstitutional. Now, of course, now the governor is saying um, – this is just so we can explain what his p- position is, sure. is that he's contending – that the Constitution, A, gives him broad powers to make sure that the budget is in compliance and that the wording from his contention uh, backs that up. 
And, of course, he's reading the Supreme Court decision from that perspective, saying that, A, that they did reaffirm that he had the power. I mean, in Missouri, as in some other states, it's just for our listeners, uh, the governors have more power than the president does regarding budgets. Correct. And so he's contending that what the Supreme Court did was reaffirm his powers to control spending in the state. Now, one of the things they did say, which was interesting, was that they basically said that um, in the state auditor's case was that the reason you had standing was because he had withheld some money from your – From my office. From yeah. your yeah. office. And, and, that, think, and that if he had not I, – I was wondering, if he had not, would that have made it impossible from the court's perspective – for you to have filed suit. I was curious about that point. Well, you know, it's it's not 100% clear, Joe. But the way we read it is as follows, that because he withheld money from my office, I had standing to sue as soon as Correct. the fiscal year Correct. ended and he had not restored that money. You have to wait till the end of the year to see if he's going to restore it. Mm-hmm. I have immediate standing. I could sue tomorrow now because he never restored the money. With respect to the other withholds, I would have to conduct a post-audit first. And if I found then that he had violated the Constitution, I could probably file suit. So I would have standing to file immediately on my own withhold, but I would have to conduct further auditing to to have standing on other withholds. Now, I only mentioned my own withhold. $300,000 was not that important. It was put in there to help establish standing. Yeah, for legal purposes. Right, for for legal legal purposes. We we, we would like the $300,000, but we're able to function fine without it. The real issue was the elderly, the poor, the sick, the students, the universities that he withheld the money from, saying he needed it for disaster relief when he knew he didn't need it for disaster relief, uh, and he just wanted to exercise some political muscle. So I think it's still a very live issue. I suspect the legislature will probably deal with this as well. We're already talking to certain legislators. Uh, And what we want to make sure is that the broad power the governor has, which we never disputed, we put it in our own brief to control the budget, but, but it's a cash flow issue. He has, he's entitled to withhold money or control the rate of expenditure to a lower level early on in the fiscal year in order to see if we're going to have enough revenue to meet the budget that's been passed. And if we're not, he can make a permanent withhold. But if we do have enough, reven- enough revenue, how can a governor say, I'm going to ignore what the legislature appropriated, what I, the governor, signed into law, and simply not give people their money? It's clearly unconstitutional. And I wonder if it's going to set a precedent that may make the governor less reticent to withhold under these circumstances because because the court said that you had standing because they withheld. It seems like if another entity is withheld money under the same circumstances and waits the certain amount of time, they could sue and find out the same question and fi- and figure out the same issue that you were trying to do. So it might have a tangible impact even – if it's done legislatively, it yeah, seems. I agree. I mean, the, the court dismissed the case without prejudice, means it can be refiled, and may, and sort of provided a roadmap for how to file a sustainable claim. That's the way I looked at it. And it was, you know, the governor claims it's a resounding victory. It was a procedural victory. He did win, but it was a procedural victory. And, he le- and the court left open many ways that other people can challenge withholds in the future. Have you talked to any legislators about changing the law then? And if you have, you know, what's their response been? Well, it, it, it would have to be a constitutional amendment, though. It's uh, not just they can they, they can't just change the law. Well, it, yeah, I, I, the, it, it's a constitutional provision that's at issue. But I think the constitutional provision at issue already precludes those. So if a statute simply clarified the constitutional provision, that might work. But you're right. The best way to do it would be by constitutional amendment. Yes, we have been in extensive discussions with both Democrat and Republican legislators. Look, a lot of the legislature did not like what he did because 
uh, and the Democrats included, because he basically took the budget they wrote and he signed into law and then rewrote it. And they feel that's a that's stepping on the separation of powers in Missouri, uh, and it's not allowing the legislature its prerogative to pass the budget. If, they, if the governor doesn't like something in the budget, he has a line-item veto. That's what he should use. Then they can override the veto if they don't like it. He circumvented that entire process, and that offended both Democrat and Republican legislators. So let's let's switch gears to something closer sure. to home. Mm-hmm. You recently unveiled an audit of the St. Louis City school system, a school district that has been in the public eye for years, if not decades, for, for under performance and unaccreditation and whatnot. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you found and the big takeaways from that audit. Well, we uh, we looked into several areas. Uh, The most disturbing finding was that in direct contravention of two state laws, students were being promoted to fifth grade when they couldn't read at a third grade level. And that's not legal in Missouri. And I think you saw that that finding received wide bipartisan praise because you've got people who can't read being promoted to higher grades. It drags down the people who can read. uh, And it's, you know, we're not policy people. We wouldn't even have reported on it had it not been a violation of state law. But once we reported on it, a lot of people pointed out that this issue of social promotion is a great concern. I saw that the Democrat state senator from the city of St. Louis wrote an editorial saying we have to stop social promotion. The governor called me. Uh, I've met with the governor a number of times on a number of issues. I actually have a very good personal rapport with the governor. Uh, But he called me into his office to sit down, go over the findings, ask how we can improve. Uh, uh, had a very favorable reaction to that audit because it was pretty hard to dispute that this was going on. We also found that their efforts to monitor possible test cheating uh, were inadequate, that the monitors that they had hired were not turning in their forms, and we found that was very problematic. They also had um, poor program assessments. They have over a 1,000 programs uh, across the schools, after-school programs, reading programs, uh, uh, leadership programs and the like, and they were only sort of looking into the uh, effectiveness of about 10 out of 1,000 per year, uh, and that's not adequate to determine if those programs are really working. So those were three of the biggest findings we had. So when you when you spoke with the governor, he's asking you, you know, what can be done to fix this? What do you tell him? Well, I mean, I just went over how the test monitoring needs to improve. Uh, I went over with him. I, again, I'm not a policy guy, so I sure. pointed out this social promotion issue, which is Mm -hmm. really serious because it's a violation of state law. Uh, And, for example, not enough kids were going to summer school. It was clear. Uh, If they did go to summer school uh, and improve their performance, they should be promoted, but they were promoting even the people who went to summer school and didn't uh, improve their performance. So there's some pretty obvious things that can be done to to tighten that up. Now, now what was the last time the St. Louis City Schools had an audit? Do do, do you recall on that? I, I don't know. Is there any indication that, from what you saw, the district was was backsliding in its performance or operations? I don't know because we didn't have anything to compare it to. What I can tell you is I've audited the four largest school districts okay. in Missouri, uh, and the social promotion issue was was most pronounced in St. Louis City, but the other three had serious problems too. All a little different, but all serious. All of them received only a fair rating, which was unfortunate uh, in my audit, but for very different reasons. What was the reaction from? St. Louis Public Schools. And is there going to be a follow-up audit? Yes. Okay. Uh, the reaction initially, of course, when we started the audit, they sent me a letter saying I didn't even have the authority to audit them, which is ridiculous because we have almost unlimited authority to audit school districts. Uh, but I thought that the superintendent's reaction was very good. He recognized the problems. Uh, he's a good guy. We have a, a lot of confidence in him. Uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes 
that special administrative board is run more by lawyers than educators, and they're interested more in image and appearance and legalities rather than the substance. And that was our criticism because mm-hmm. we received some obstruction along the way. Yeah, uh, state audits can be a major fa- deal. Back in the 1970s, before you gentlemen were born, except for, except for the auditor, um, there was a major state audit of the city of St. Louis that had been done by, by pe- petition, which resulted in some major revamping and how the city government operated because the auditor found a whole lot of problems, and it was a, uh, an issue for years. So it can have a major impact on how a major governmental entity operates once the auditor comes in with their team. Now, I'm curious, has, has the governor asked you to, uh, you know, you, you mentioned before that if, as far as cities or political jurisdictions, it's either by petition or the governor. Has right, the governor right. asked you to audit any cities or political jurisdictions since you've been elected? One, the Monarch Fire Protection District. Do you? Uh, do you and think, we asked him to ask us to do it. Do you think that? Do you think that process should be changed to make it easier to audit certain municipalities or political subdivisions? Because I could see instances around the St. Louis area where that may be needed, but might not occur because of just the way it's written. I'm just I'm well, just curious. About you know, I mean, any that. government official always wants more authority, but but the fact of the matter is, we have only 120 staff. We have agencies, boards, commissions to do. And I think it's, in some respects, good that we only come into a political subdivision when the citizens have taken the time and effort to say we really want you. Uh, and there are also some provisions. For example, I want to audit the Kansas City Water Department. And the, if, if the city council or county council or county commission uh, has it in their, their bylaws or regulations that they can invite an audit, uh, that's also possible, which is true in Kansas City. So there's several ways it can happen. Order the governor, petition, or in some cases they can actually invite me in to do it. But I don't have original jurisdiction over political subdivisions, and I don't have original jurisdiction over counties that have their own auditor. As, as, you, as you just mentioned, so... Yes, well, I, I think this has been pretty fascinating. Now, can we sh- shift yet to the political? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> want to make sure. This I is going to be less fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Mm-hmm. No, 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 that's not true. Um, last weekend at the at the CPAC regional conference here, uh, the state auditor was among two statewide Missouri officials who yes. spoke, joined by Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. Correct. And anyway, in the case of uh, Auditor Schweik, he gave a very. Uh, rip-roaring speech. And among other things, he referred to the likely Democratic nominee for governor, Chris Coster, as, quote, Benedict Arnold, which which, uh, I think that's the first time I'd heard that said publicly about Coster, who switched parties uh, in 2007. But uh, it really got a big um, rise from the crowd. I was interested in, um, as you're looking towards running for re-election in 2014, how you're approaching that, especially amid there is some pressure and you've already made some news about that, about 2016, about whether or not you are being encouraged by some people to run for governor in 2016. You put out a statement a few weeks ago telling other candidates to quit announcing for 2016 when you've got 2014. Can you talk a bit about all that? Sure. My approach to public service has always been exactly the same. Put your head down, work really hard, do a good job, and then see what opportunities arise. Right now, I have a job. It's a Missouri State Auditor. I think the office is running very well. I think you'll see in my reelection effort the accomplishments we've been able to make. I'm focused on that job and the reelection to that job. The Republican Party has other important 2014 priorities. We have veto-proof majorities uh, in, the, in the Missouri House and Senate, which uh, your friend Chris Coster has said he's going to put a lot of money into ending. <laughs> uh, and uh, and 
we have a county executive race uh, where I think the incumbent, incumbent is vulnerable uh, in St. Louis County. Uh, and I think the Republican Party needs to focus on the task at hand, which is 2014, where there are many important elections. Uh, and you know, Joe, because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, that the political landscape changes dramatically every two or three years. And to start talking yes. about 2016 now uh, seems to me to be ridiculous. Uh, it, 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 it detracts focus from 2014. And I think a candidate that declares in 2013 they're running in 2016 is – is naive because things are going to look much different then. And, you know, my, when I ran in my primary um, four years ago, my opponent pre-announced me and it did him absolutely no good. And I guess you also mentioned that announcing this early just leaves you to three years of attacks by not only people within a primary, but by Democrats, which may leave them weaker. It's already started. But I, one thing I wanted to ask you is one of the people who did announce, uh, Senator Kurt Schaefer, he put out a statement in the Ready Missouri Times. Attorney, Attorney General. Attorney General that, you know, I wanted to be open. I don't want to do this kabuki dance with a will I or won't I run for statewide office and just put it out there. What I don't know if you read that statement, but does he have a point there, or do you think that your your points still stand? Well, well, let me start by saying I have a very good relationship with Senator Schaefer. Uh, I do think he, uh, he would be a very good candidate for attorney general someday. Uh, but I don't buy the idea that the, the world is waiting for him to decide and announce what he's going to do, and they're going to be very upset if he doesn't give his intentions out. I think a lot of politicians think the world is really looking at everything they do when it's really not. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I mean, I mean, realistically, no one really cares if somebody announces for something in 2013. The only thing it does is give them media attention and it distracts from what we're doing in 2014. So Senator Schaefer is a, is one of our finest public servants. I would not be surprised to see him an elected state statewide official someday, but I just thought he announced way too early and got no benefit but from it. Let's talk about your particular race in 2014, though. Sure. There's already, I think, been a state representative, Jay Schwer- Swearingen. I may have mispronounced his name in, that, in that Kansas correct. City. But, but see, until now, the Democrats really didn't. Yeah. Have, they, don't ha- they haven't had any high-profile We, we had, like, you know, randomly you. asked a lot of people whether they were going to run for state auditor, and they pretty much begged off or said and no. And this is, like, we'll be... I think the first time in about 20 years um, where it's just where, state where auditor. Where it's just state auditor, where there's not a U.S. Senate right, race. Right, uh, 24 years, I think. Yes. Yeah. yes. So, but, but as I kind of mentioned on the outset, while you probably have the advantages of incumbency, you've, you've been fundraising actively, you have all these accomplishments. In 2010, an incumbent auditor lost. You, you defeated her. What do you think you're going to be able to do to make sure that scenario doesn't replicate itself in 2014? Well, I think that I'm going to be able to rely on my very strong record as auditor, finding 21 embezzlers, hundreds of millions of waste, uh, completely nonpartisan audits. I think you've seen my grading system has fallen about evenly to Republican and Democrats, both good and bad. I've been an auditor for everybody. Uh, and, uh, and I also think that uh, my opponent in 2010 sort of was complete, just assumed she was going to win and didn't work hard enough. And I've been, as you know, if you can follow my movements, going all around the state the past few months and will continue to do that. I mean, sometimes six and seven cities a week. Uh, I don't take anything for granted. I think I've got a great record. I think I've enjoyed bipartisan support, but I've got to prove to the people that I deserve to be reelected. Now, your appearance at CPAC, you want to talk a bit about why you decided to appear at a, such a partisan gathering as that? I mean, granted, you're a partisan office, but as you pointed out, many of your things that you do are seen through nonpartisan lenses as far as many 
people, which is one of the reasons the Democrats may have had a problem really recruiting any high-level opponent to you. What's the what, what? What was the purpose of the CPAC appearance? I'm not criticizing it. I, well, I just wanted you to well, explain. Well, it. I'll tell you what I told Jason Kander after he won and we met for the first time. And I said, "Look, Jason, when we're in this building, we're working together. We're all trying to improve services for the people of Missouri. I'm not going to go after you like they tried to go after me the second I got there in the Capitol." Now, Jason Kander is the Secretary of State, right? Yes. Right. And they, they, you might remember, as soon as I became auditor, they started the minority leader back then, Mike Talboy, started sending me nasty letters and things. I said, "I'm yes. not. Gonna, I'm not going to do any of that because when we're here." sort of on campus. We work for the people. But, you know, we're both going to put on our partisan jerseys and go to partisan events and give the red meat speech. And he agreed (laughs) with me that's the way it has to be. Uh, And, you know, I am a Republican. I do believe in the Republican Party. And I do many political events, just not as many that are high profile and go on YouTube like the CPAC thing. I do political events every week uh, where I talk about the need to to, to win as Republicans and what the Republican Party stands for. And, you know, the Republican Party kind of took a beating last November, so I try to get some energy back in the crowd, which has been successful so far. Uh, and any political candidate who runs on a party ticket is going to, you know, try to do their job in a nonpartisan way, but at the same time still try to get members of his or her own party elected, which is what I was doing at CPAC. And I had fun. If you look at the speech on yes. YouTube, it's a good, a good solid <laughs> it red. It seemed like you were enjoying yeah. yourself. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, we enjoy these things. They're fun. And, and, and uh, you know, they had a big void because the entire con- congressional yeah. delegation was stuck in Washington. So they called me and I was going to do like a two-minute speech. They said, make it 15, take your time, you know. Uh, and so I took advantage of it and just had some fun pointing out the differences between what the Republicans stand for and what the Democrats stand for as a party. Uh, in the, you know, that we're for a small, efficient government. And uh, and I pointed out some examples of some of the inefficient government I've seen. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, and I very much enjoyed it. Now, now, now at, at Lincoln Days this year, I remember you made a, a, a speech about the statewide effort in 2012. And I think you had made this speech in other Lincoln Days as well. And it was a pretty tough critique of how the statewide candidates did, said that some of them weren't prepared to run, some of them didn't get the right support. I'm just curious, and, and maybe I'm not paraphrasing your speech correctly, how was that, what was the response of that speech? Do you think that people are taking your advice to heart and are going to try to do better, or do you, did you get some criticism for that? I'd I say the comments were 90-10 favorable. Mm-hmm. There was a few people, because I, you know, I kind of had some negative things to say about consultants, and some, some of them weren't too happy about it. Uh, but basically what my point was, if you look at the demographics of Missouri, it is a conservative-leaning state, and even Governor Romney won by nine points. And yet down ticket, we lost five out of six statewide races. That suggests the problem is not philosophy. It's the way we ran the campaigns, and that was my point. For example, the Republican Party last year spent $23 million on primaries within its own party. I mean that's inexcusable. $23 million is a lot of money. Uh, and I, you can't eliminate all primaries. You never will, and I'm not saying we should. But the Democrats have been much better at deconflicting. Uh, the other thing the Democrats do is they run as Republicans and then govern as Democrats. I say we have to call <laughs> them on that. I mean, Jay Nixon wouldn't talk about Obamacare. He wouldn't be seen with Obama. He wouldn't talk about Medicaid expansion. He wouldn't talk about any of that until after he got reelected. So I think we need to be better uh, in the way we run our campaigns, the way we pick our candidates, the way we deconflict, and the way we portray our opponents. I don't think it's a problem with philosophy because if you look at the polling data, it is a relatively conservative state, and there's no reason Democrats should be winning five out of six statewide elections. Now, um, since then, uh, have you seen things that the party has or has not been doing in line with your suggestions? Well, I mean, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed, but the first thing I've noticed is there seems to be complete unity in the party around my reelection effort. 
the, the libertarians, uh, the Christian conservatives, the traditional West County moderates, uh, all of them uh, have, have rallied around my reelection effort, and that's a good sign. They recognize that I'm the only statewide official up. We don't need a primary. We don't need intra-party conflict, uh, and so I'm heartened by that. Now, might you get involved in, since, at least for the moment, you know, we're not sh- sure, we, we have one sort of announced Democrat, but yeah. you will be at the top of the ticket. Do you expect to be doing some campaigning, let's say, for whoever runs for county executive, which is probably in in, in the St. Louis area, will be the number two race on the 2014 ballot? Yeah. Or state rep races? Or sure. state senate races Let, as yes, well. Right. Sure, definitely. As the person who's at the top of the ticket, I think I'll be very popular and in demand, which is unusual for an auditor. <laughs> <laughs> People don't usually say, hey, we want the auditor. Um, but they will this time because it's the top of the ticket. And uh, so I do plan to, you know, sort of combine campaign events where I would go for my own purposes but also be there to promote the state representative, the state senator, the person running for the county executive job. Yeah. Now, are you – I mean, I know you said you didn't want to talk about 2016, but a number of people have been encouraging you to at least consider running for governor in 2016. And there are some Democrats who predict you will be the nominee in 2016 for governor. Anything you want to say about that? No. I mean, what, I, what I've said is that I'm focused on 2014 and being reelected as state auditor. And that's the way I've all, my entire career, I, you know, there, there's, I've noticed in politics, there are the people that sort of are already planning the next 20 years out. <laughs> You've got people like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama that were planning to be president from the day they left law school. And then you got other people like Ronald Reagan and George Bush who sort of wandered into the presidency. <laughs> well, I think politicians can, at a lower level like me, can take those two lessons. I think that the that the less planned approach tends to be more successful the most often. Sure, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama did it, but for every one person like that, there's a million people who think they're going to be president someday or senator or governor, and they never get there. Did, did you imagine and do you be state auditor in no, 2010? No, or is never, this a complete surprise to you? I never even planned to be in politics. The, when, I was, when I was on the ballot in 2010, it was the first time I had ever been on any ballot of any kind. And I'm talking about like I didn't run for class president in seventh grade. I didn't run for student council in high college. I I mean, I, I had never planned to run for – I did want to do public service, and I said that back from when I was a young lawyer. I'd like some to find some way into public service someday, but I always thought it would be like what I did for the Bush administration, get appointed to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never thought I would run. I think I think that – I, I advise – I wrote a book about career success too, and I interviewed 40 very, very successful people, and 90 percent of them said they did not have a specific career plan when they started out, and they ended up somewhere different than they thought. I think the better way to succeed over time, and I tell students this all the time, is to – Find what you're really good at and what you really like. You've got, it's got to be both. Set out in a general direction, work really hard, and then look for opportunities. And they might come a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right of where you're looking, but they'll, they'll arrive. Well, that should just about do it for us. Thank you for joining us. Um, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the auditor on Twitter at uh, I don't I don't have a Twitter. I don't get oh. do Twitter. Oh. Spence <laughs> Jackson twi- tweets for me, but you can go on our website www.auditor.mo.gov and we have a Facebook page there too. I, I think it might be Auditor Schweik. 
I think, yeah, I, think I think you have multiple Twitter accounts, one for the campaign and one <laughs> and, for the and, no, yeah, and none of which I ever use. Uh, what I what I've told my people is I'm I, I I've seen so many people damaged by Twitter. I've said we are going to have the most boring tweets ever. I'm going to deliver an audit in Marshfield tonight. That's all it's going to say. You know what I mean? Well, that and, that, that was an interesting audit. It was a I think it got a poor rating. Yeah, that was too bad. That was and a petition. A, yeah. And I'd like to do a shout out to the RFT. For yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you for. Thank you to the Riverfront Times for being very, very generous. Uh, it was completely unexpected. Yes. Well, you'd say what it was. Uh, we received the award for Best Podcast yes. from the Riverfront Times. Congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> and congratulations on being the first guest on the award-winning Political Speaking Podcast. I appreciate it. And, I'm, and am I also the first person ever to appear on my birthday? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Yes, as far as we know. We have broken yeah. a lot of ground. <laughs> Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long.